0: Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Introducing Bluehost Cloud. Ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud. The new web hosting plan from Bluehost with 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times So what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com.
1: So my guest today has been an innovator, a trailblazer ahead of the curve on implementing new technologies in the world of content and media for decades now. Obviously, the technology that everybody has their eyes and ears on these days in terms of media or just everyday lifestyle activities would be our artificial intelligence. She's now become an evangelist and kind of the translator of AI technology for the rest of us. My good friend, Taryn Southern, thank you so much for joining us.
2: It's good to see you. It's great to see you. I never, you never thought I'd make it onto this
1: Yes, couch. you did. Yes, you did. You knew you'd be here for many <laughs> At years. At some we'll, point. We'll get back to our origination story by the end of this chat. Um, it's a so, good one. Absolutely. So, in terms of you understanding new technologies, being willing to adopt them early, um, and using them to your benefit as a creator, why don't you take us back to to how that began with you, you know your your activities as one of the earliest YouTubers, and then we can kind of lead into how you were getting involved in artificial intelligence and its utility before ChatGPT was a twinkle in anybody's eye.
2: Sure. And I, I think it's it's, you know, those things are are actually quite connected. I think about my early days on YouTube and you know, really it was this window to be seen, it was this window to connect to, to people outside of our immediate sure, network. But
1: you're, you're sitting there the first few years that you moved to LA uh, trying to be an actress in the more traditional sense and traditional yeah. television and film, and then YouTube and the internet presents itself and then your observations were what?
2: This is an incredible opportunity. Mm-hmm. This will change everything. I think, you know, I was working as a TV host at the time and wanting to get into acting and didn't have an agent for acting. It was one of those weird recursive problems where you have to get an agent to get work, but you can't get work without an agent. And I noticed that people were starting to upload sketches and clips of themselves onto YouTube. And uh, one of the first people that I looked up was Jessica Lee Rose, who was Mm -hmm. this Lonely Girl 15 character.
1: Lonely Girl 15. Do You remember? Yeah. Kind
2: of the first big hit web series. But when people first started watching her, they thought it was a real story Mm -hmm. of a real 16-year-old girl vlogging from her bedroom. It was Mm -hmm. really this actress in Los Angeles who and was she was hired for the yours, job.
1: Though, right? She became a friend oh, okay. of mine. Okay, she became a friend afterwards.
2: Yes, I ended up reaching out to her and we became friends, but you know, her story was pretty extraordinary. She went on to to work quite a lot in television in her early 20s mm-hmm. as a result of that. And so I just saw it as an opportunity to make stuff to be seen. Uh there was no way to make money at that point yeah. in
1: time. And yeah. Even for a few years afterwards.
2: Oh, for a while yeah. afterwards. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I like to joke, I always get into everything before there's any money mm-hmm. to be made, and then, I, and then I swiftly leave. You know, right if, as if the...
1: you stick around with this AI thing, the money might, might start coming sooner rather than later. <laughs> um, and so you, you acknowledge, you, you know, uh, identify this as an opportunity to kind of circumvent the traditional Hollywood system and gaining notoriety or, or becoming a content creator and getting, getting your, your content, your talents out there. And that led you to do what?
2: Yeah. uh, I made my first YouTube video in 2007. Okay. It was a parody of a video called Obama Girl. Yes. I don't know if you remember that, but there was a girl singing, I've got a crush on Obama Mm -hmm. for the 2007 primaries. Mm -hmm. And I did the lesbian love song version of that for Hillary Uh, Clinton as one would as one would and I don't know why I chose that as Mm. my first foray
1: (laughs) going off instinct right as all creatives need to Um, and so that was very successful
2: it did well it got a couple million views and I ended up on MSNBC and I think Fox News doing some correspondent work and Mm. that was that was the moment where I realized okay this actually has legs sure you know people are seeing this as um as something real, although in the entertainment industry at that time, doing YouTube was very much a faux pas.
1: It was frowned it, upon. It
2: was frowned upon. You were sort of seen as a, a D-list
1: or it a still,
2: C-rate actor. There was
1: still the, the the phrase user-generated content. Yes. Right, and it's interesting. It would be interesting to look back and see when that that phrase was phased out and that user-generated content no one was, was no longer considered user-generated. I was like, oh, this is talent. These are the creators. These yeah. are people who otherwise would be actors or actresses. They're creating content on YouTube or other digital platforms. So the idea that this is just amateurish because it didn't come through the the valve um, yeah. of a studio or a network is no longer relevant.
2: That's right. Yeah. But there were no gatekeepers. It was amazing. And it was this wild, wild west. All of the early YouTubers started moving to LA around 2008, 2009. So there was a pretty close-knit community of us that would hang out and just shoot videos for fun. And it was certainly not anything close to what Sure. It became even in 2014, 2015, it was a completely different beast.
1: Mm-hmm. But you still very much uh, er, those involving themselves in this were early adopters and noticed something before everybody else did. Yes. Um, as you did hint at, uh, you did not continue as robustly with your YouTube content creator career um, for whatever reason. But you 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 know became you were interested in new technologies. Those new technologies became more a higher compute and became. more powerful and interesting. And, you know, your interest shifted to that um, and eventually led you to uh, uh, artificial intelligence, machine learning, but a little bit earlier than a lot of other people. And I imagine that was kind of, tell us about, you know, uh, uh, how you started to dip your toes in that and were utilizing artificial intelligence pre-pandemic when it was in the very much YouTube 2007 and 2009 phase.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I think had I not done... YouTube. I don't know if I actually would have stumbled upon AI as early as I did, mm-hmm. because a lot of us who were on YouTube, we were always looking for the most efficient tools to mm-hmm. get a, to accomplish what we needed to accomplish, which was churning out video content, okay. um, which was part of the part of the reason that I found myself disillusioned by the space by 2015, 2016, you had all these social media platforms. Now all of a sudden you weren't just making a video for YouTube, you were making videos for Instagram and Twitter and all these things. So the more tools you had to make that process easier, the better. Sure. And I remember stumbling upon an article in the New York Times about music being written with AI. Mm-hmm. This was 2016. And I was in a Google artist in residence program and experimenting with these different emerging technologies, mostly in the VR, AR space. Okay. But I read this article, and I was like, hmm, I wonder if I can just play around, experiment with these tools, see if I can integrate it into my uh, projects with the, the Google program. Mm-hmm. I started playing around. And it was this you know, mushroom cloud sure. <laughs> that went off in my brain. I couldn't believe how sophisticated these tools were. I'm like, mm-hmm. no one's talking about this. This yeah. is very strange. The, I can make really good music. Uh, I, Let me rephrase that, I can make, for someone that has no traditional music experience, I can produce an entire track from my bedroom that sounds decent Uh uh, with the help of these tools. And so I ended up reaching out to five or six different companies at the time that were developing the tools, got my hands on all the kind of behind the scenes, a lot of them didn't have commercially available Mm -hmm. software and created an album in 2017.
1: Interesting. And what was the reaction to that album? Um, How did you use that as a case study uh, on what AI can accomplish and how you are one of the leading uh, creators experimenting with that, that then would lead to more opportunities in the space?
2: Uh, I think the reaction to the album was pretty much what you would expect. There were were a lot of people who were horrified by this idea of machines making music Mm -hmm. and had a lot of questions as would be reasonable there were also a lot of other musicians and creatives particularly in the content creator space and i would say in the electronic music space sure that were very interested mm-hmm. because they were accustomed to using technology as the, you know, the canvas sure. to bring their ideas to life.
1: No uh, taboo or no shame about not being able to sit there and strum on a guitar. That's and right. yeah, sure, everyone wants to uh, throw out the lino. Oh, they're just pressing buttons. Well, the buttons produce some sounds. Some people like the sounds and I get paid to push those buttons so I'm not going to have any reservations about it.
2: That's right. So I remember having a number of meetings with a handful of pretty prominent electronic music managers okay. who were very interested in understanding how they could get these tools in the hands of their clients and you know, start using them. So it was, a, it was a really fun kind of solitary project, but I loved it. And I also learned so much about making music. Mm-hmm. And that was the other part of my aha moment, was that uh, you know, we all have different learning styles, learning capacities. Some of us are audio learners, some of us learn better by, uh, by reading, visual learners. And I'm such an analytical brain that for me, breaking music down into parameters mm-hmm. uh, really helped me understand it better. And I think my ability to actually, I don't know, speak the language of a producer sure. was so much, had improved so much from the, from this process than from the typical process of maybe working with another music producer. Mm-hmm. So I found that fascinating.
1: Absolutely. And we're going to get into the details about the applications and utility of AI on producing music and, and where it's... You know how it's evolved since you identified it in 2017 18 and where it is right now and where it's going to go, which is fascinating and and thrilling in a a lot of ways, Um, but then what has that led you to uh, as a leading prominent voice. Um, and go to as kind of the, the translator and both the translator uh, of, of AI for some of us lay people and the instructor on how to utilize AI um, and someone that major corporations and the, the the companies that are most focused on this space are looking to to chime in on how, how this technology should develop and be used.
2: So I'm looking at it really, I'm focused primarily on two areas. One is how can we use AI to augment, to amplify our creativity? and really dissecting that process, the human creativity process, and then figuring out how to optimize the use of these tools in a variety of applications, whether that be uh, storytelling, written storytelling, music, video, but also mental health, um, like personal development, that kind of stuff. Sure. Then there's the other category, which is sort of equally as fascinating, but maybe a few years down the line, and that's where is AI going in the next five, 10 years? Uh, what should we be prepared for? I've been working in neurotechnology now for, I don't know, five, six years in a kind of a strange um, career evolution, but looking at how we're using AI now to decode the human brain mm-hmm. and what some of the interfaces that are coming down the line, brain-computer interfaces that are using AI to decode the human brain and connect it to digital devices, like what that means for all of us as we get older mm-hmm. and age.
1: And so you are, there's one company I, I noticed that you're, I believe it's uh, BlackRock Neuroscience.
2: Mm-hmm. BlackRock that,
1: Neurotech. T- okay, Neurotech in terms of uh, um, the, you, you know, uses to decode the human brain and what we're going to get to some of the utilities of that in, in the healthcare space um, in a moment. And then you're also from maybe, I guess, kind of a more media content consumerist perspective, uh, speaking, uh, advising companies on how to use AI and what's coming down the pike and, you know, and, I'm sure I I have no doubt some of them have thrown offers your way to come in and work full-time for XYZ corporation, probably far less interesting than being able to work with all these various companies I'd imagine.
2: Yeah. It's a lot of fun going in and figuring out how can each company, how can these different companies integrate this technology into their teams? Mm -hmm. And if it's only making people faster, smarter, more efficient, I think, we're missing the boat and so it's it's really about how how do you take advantage of the skill sets that you know you might have and get rid of the things that you hate doing mm-hmm. using these
1: tools interesting okay so in the uh, in terms of media and content and how this is going to redefine it i mean in real time at rapid pace redefining how content is created, our expectations for content, and then obviously downstream in terms of the lives of people who were involved in creating content because some of them may become obsolete. Some of them need to evolve in certain ways that uh, make them more administrators of technology as opposed to people generating uh, uh, substantive assets themselves. And so OpenAI, I believe, uh, it, it, the the just game-changing technology re- released last week, Sora is, is the name. Um, and that's a text-to-video generator, yes. I believe. Um, so maybe if you could t- t- tell us a little bit foundationally about just basically text-to-video generators and then specifically what is so exciting and groundbreaking and rocked everybody's world about Sora last week.
2: Okay, and for, before I even get into what Sora is and how it works, I and mean, what was your reaction when you saw um, it, the It was impressive.
1: It was the, it, of course, very impressive, right? Um, however, I'm a little bit limited because so many times I've seen, and this a track back, and something that we skipped over, we can maybe talk about about how AR and VR got kicked around so much, and those terms got kicked around, endless financial sources, venture capital funds, God, God knows who, uh, God knows who, incinerated money, trying, throwing it at VR and AR companies and utilities to see who was going to become some massive player, like the open AI of that space. And I'm sure some of them are doing some stuff somewhere, but I think most of that money was incinerated because these technologies have not gained mass adoption, but AI, it looks like will. So I could sit there and say, okay, that looks pretty cool, but I'm going to have a layer of skepticism that, all right, I saw some AR VR stuff that was pretty cool. And it didn't gain, it didn't gain mass adoption. Um, Not to say that this won't, but I'm limited in in you know kind of that my prejudices from seeing other impressive technologies that didn't really go anywhere. Um, so impressive, super cool. All right, wait, this is se- going to put a lot of people out of business and out of jobs. But I'm not entirely sure where it goes.
2: Totally fair. I think the difference between AR, VR, and AI is that AR, VR require the adoption of a new de- device. Okay. Yeah. Makes um, sense. When we're looking at these. Uh, LLM models, large language models, that are being used to write text, to create images, to create sound effects, to create video. Uh, you know, we don't need to adopt any sort of new device in order to utilize them and to make uh, to, to to make them work for us. I truly think, and I, I, you know, we'll I'll knock on the fake leather.
1: Yeah, or the no. <laughs> whatever the fabric is, we can knock on it.
2: We'll Who came on on up with wood? I truly believe that. We are witnessing right now the most transformative technology of our t- of our time. Mm-hmm. At least up until the point that I've been born, and we've seen sure. a lot of yes, we've seen the evolution of a lot of things. We didn't even have cell phones when we were young.
1: I listen, you know, Matt. Uh, how did people not get anywhere? Like. Forget forget MapQuest, they needed maps. I don't know where to drive. Anyways, you get the idea. Yes, we've seen some pretty extreme advances, advancements in technology, and you believe this one is going to outstrip all of those. I do. And I've seen some smart people who have mentioned that, and they said that, you know, if you're planning for the rest of this decade, um, you need to plan for a world where we have compute speeds and capabilities 10 times what we have right now. And that's hard for us to even think about how pervasive technology is even in our world, particularly for phone obsessives like myself. And mm. we're sitting here and thinking, all right, a bunch of this stuff that we saw in uh, uh, projections of the future from the films of the late 20th century, the Back to the Future twos or God knows what. And obviously, uh, you know, to imagine uh, maybe not flying cars, but some other version of advanced technology and looking at, all right, what are the steps in between here and there? And we might look at where how much progress we've made by 2024 and say we haven't gotten that far towards the most impressive stuff from those uh, historical projections. But maybe... Literally, there's advancements over the next five to eight years that literally will get us there in a heartbeat. And that, that's interesting to consider.
2: 100%. And all of those advancements require massive compute. Mm-hmm. And what we're seeing now is the price per watts of energy. I mean, it just keeps going down and down and down because of these semiconductors. And-
1: so you're saying and- you invest in NVIDIA?
2: Uh, yes, Even I mean, I don't missing. know, I don't know if you've missed the boat, so this don't take my investment, investment advice. advice.
1: But you know, if some of this stuff does play out, <laughs> Nvidia seems like a good bet, but they are the one, they're at least the leader in. Creating the the hard well I guess it's hardware but it has a software component <laughs> uh, the chips and the technology that's going to power all this you know exponential input in computing um, computing power um, from a place that's already pretty high.
2: That's right, and I believe yeah, that they're yeah. on track to surpassing Apple now
0: in yeah. terms of market cap, which is just absolutely insane. Yeah,
1: that's wild. And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after
0: this show is supported by State Farm. Insurance is a part of any solid financial plan.
1: To the break
2: our landscape ahead is going to look very very different and i think sora which was openai's text to video model um, is a perfect example of that i mean here i don't know if you saw the ai videos that were coming out a year ago i actually started working with some of these um some of these software models back in 2017, 2018, they weren't even large language models back mm-hmm. then. They were recursive AI models, they worked Interesting. very differently.
1: What's the difference between large language models, LLMs, which is a term a lot of people might hear thrown around and what you just mentioned.
2: I'm going to do a terrible job of explaining this because I'm not an engineer, but essentially it's just the way that the data is categorize the way the data is labeled. Mm-hmm. Um, in the large language models, it's all done via language labeling, uh-huh. language modeling. Um, whereas recursive not or generative adversarial models might be something different. So for instance, a gener- generative adversarial model, you give the AI model three, four, five you know, options, it spits something out at you, and then you say, that's bad, mm-hmm. that's good, That's bad. That's good. And that's how it learns what's good or bad It's just this like long sort of rolling process back and forth with the with the engineering team versus um, these new large language models just function very differently um,
1: using just a massive pool of language and phrases and terms plugged into some sort of system and it, it, it hones down you know, the learning process and the understanding and the neural networks in the system to a level at which it can create really cool stuff and really accurate stuff.
2: Correct. Okay. And I don't remember anyone talking about LLMs in 2017, 2018. I don't think Not anyone- 2021! I don't think people thought we can recreate pixel by pixel on a screen using a language model. Okay. I think they thought you had to do something, you had to take ingest that data um and assess that data in a different way. Okay, and and, so
1: this is uh, the, it, this being text to uh, text to image generator. It's literally like you just describe what you want and it creates it.
2: It just creates it. yeah. Wow. Um, and, and and I actually just read a paper yesterday about wh- what the backend data model looks like for the AI to determine when you say I want a puppy that's running through the grass and is sniffing a mushroom. Like, where does it determine at what point in the video to have all of these things happen? Mm -hmm. And it was a really fascinating. Yeah, yeah. It was a fascinating paper. Um, But I don't know if LLMs will actually be the AI model that gets us to the next stage of... Do we
1: know what the other options are?
2: Uh, I mean, there's a lot of really smart people working sure, yeah, on sure. them, yeah, um, yeah, and enough. using words that I <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. no, <laughs> listen, to
2: understand.
1: I, I, if we get to the point in which, all right, we, uh, a person at your level of understanding understands LLMs. It's, you know, whether or not the next iteration of that, I mean, you know, you're, you're obviously at the forefront of that, that understanding and who even knows. I mean, there's people, the people working on what the next iteration are, uh, took more, you know, chemical engineering or uh, electrical engineering courses than I did. Um, all right. So, uh, I
2: think it will start to resemble more of a, as we get into quantum computing, and assuming that that's actually possible, and having that level of compute power, we'll be looking at something that resembles more of the human brain. Okay. So we don't only categorize things by language. I mean, we certainly use language as a way to label uh, things in our mind and to mm-hmm. store memories. But when you have a memory, you might be coming, you might be coming to that memory from a from a place like a sense memory from smell, from touch. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, from a visual. And so when we think about the future models, they'll be, I think, they'll be more diverse in terms of how they're approaching Mm -hmm. learning.
1: Okay. So interesting. We'll get a little bit deeper into that in terms of, you know, how it plays into some of the more uh, uh, practical, uh, what you mentioned about, you know, brain, brain, computer interfaces and whatnot, the uses there. But sticking with content for a moment or two,
2: Oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, I, we no, never, I never answered your Sora no, question no, 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 about no, what we, does this mean for content? What
1: right? does this mean for content? I mean, are you going to be able to, uh, uh, how long in 18, 24 months are you going to be able to, is, is a, a film producer or a screenwriter going to be able to, like, speak a movie into a recorder and out pops a movie that requires no physical production whatsoever, no animators, and no actors?
2: Yes. Woo! <laughs> yes, and I yeah. believe it will be indistinguishable wow. within two years.
1: That is both exhilarating and, and so, kind of scary, and well, not as scary for us as it is for people working in physical production, but anyways, um, and- It's a
2: lot to take in. I mean, you have to think, I don't know, you probably know better than I do what the size of the entertainment industry is. The, you know, the, the capital market- Sure. That's pumped into this industry that's based here in LA every single year. And yeah. what happens to that when you have a technology like this that is decentralized, mm. that can be used Really anywhere, Um, I have some theories on what is going to happen. Of course, I have no crystal ball, Um, but it's you know I'm sure I I heard that there was a group of comedy writers that held some meeting last week in a panic. Mm -hmm. Um, They have an animated show, and what do you do with all of these animators? And what do you do with just all of? I mean, just people who've dedicated their lives to perfecting these crafts and. Um, undoubtedly this will impair their yeah. future work.
1: And then there, there's the question of, you know, because listen, this isn't the first time there's been a technology that at first glance looked like it would completely replace some some profession or some trade and ended up, you know, either uh, either animating and exaggerating it, or just it it required those people to become more managers of the technologies and users of the technology, just like people thought when Excel came around, okay, that, you know, accountants are done, and well, no, now you just need to uh, uh, hire accountants to handle Excel and the inputs in there. Um, and maybe some of these animators are going to need to be the creative minds that are going to help further hone the inputs uh, into the technology and manage the AI process. But then comes the question of, okay, does that just mean that there's space for one fiftieth as many of them? Um, That's right. So it's going to be extremely, extremely disruptive, both to feature film, long form, creative scripted content um, and to you know commercial content. Um, I've already spoken with some people that have. Branding agencies or branded content agencies, and and yeah, they're they're already starting to recalibrate, um, and are not entirely sure the extent to which they need to. Um, But you know, you also wonder, uh, uh, okay, you might be able to. uh, uh, Polar Express was like groundbreaking in its use of animation, so maybe in eighteen months, there's going to be a few Polar Express uh, and analogous level. Animated productions, but hey people still want to see real people and they're still familiar with Margot Robbie or Timothy Chalamet or God Mm -hmm. knows who else and um, And so it's gonna be it's gonna disrupt a portion of the market as as opposed to the entire market It's probably the more likely place. We we see ourselves at within the next couple years. I imagine
2: you're right and actually I should have prefaced my bold (laughs) future prediction with the fact that I don't think we'll have um, human AI, human AI renderings done to the quality that is necessary within two years. So your Margot Robbie's of the world, I think they're just fine for the next two years. Yeah. Um, Margot,
1: I don't know if you're, you know, (laughs) coming up on in her lane, you might have some trouble.
2: But if we're talking about animated films, CGI, Pixar type stuff, Mm. I mean, all of that, I mean, it's really possible now, right now, yeah. you could make a movie that looks that, Pixar quality yeah. in your bedroom.
1: Yeah, what What you show, you did a couple videos on your Instagram that looked that level of quality.
2: Yeah, and that uh, was not even with Sora, you yeah. know, that was with oh, like wow. an older version. Really? Of, yeah, that was an older version of Dolly plugged into Runway.
1: And it is it is evolving and growing and improving at a rapid pace. Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, that's filmed video, audio video content um where we're at in terms of music and and verbal communication i mean so another interesting usage was like in in real time language translators yes. um you did some you were speaking in japanese i believe yes. on camera i think it was used by uh, the argentinian president milei in his uh, a un speech where it was Essentially, looked like it was perfectly dubbed, where you couldn't, even, you could not even tell there was any distinction between the way his mouth was moving and like him speaking in English, even though he gave the speech in in Spanish or Argentinian. Um, is that a language? Anyways, um, yeah. So, tell us about that technology.
2: And I don't. They, we need a new word to describe this because we typically have captions or we have dubbing okay. for sort of foreign language film translations, uh, video translations, and now we can simply transform our own faces and our voices so that it's me speaking Japanese Mm -hmm. with my accent, with my exact vocal tone, um, with utter perfection. And you also cannot visually tell. God, so yeah. we need
1: to do a whole new generation of kung fu movies where people just speak in English. <laughs> that's Got right. Yeah. So
2: on, on the one hand, it's going to make our experience watching foreign films so much better. Uh-huh. We're not going to have to deal with those annoying dubs of someone else's voice instead of the actors. There's going to be right?
1: foreign films that we essentially, at the push of a button, can translate and then become American films.
2: Yeah, and I think so, that's actually wow. really exciting because then we'll yeah. get we'll have this whole new repertoire of amazing. Sure. Film and we can,
1: people can lament the authenticity of the original language, but listen, if people have to read the, the captions anyways, that sure. interferes with that experience. It obviously would be superior if spoken in the language that people understand. Sure, um, But yes, th-
2: there's there's a number of these technologies that are out from, from that. to Music is obviously a big mm-hmm. uh, place space where fans are creating their own fan songs, utilizing the voices you, of you their favorite some, some singers. Some
1: features and some... Uh, um, like Google Collab and uh, what else? You know, Music Gateway, and that these are some of the tools and tech uh, and features that uh, people are creating albums essentially from their favorite artists, and that's a capability.
2: That's right. So, and I, I just happened to use. I think it was Google Collab, and I don't remember the other one. I was trying to figure out. If, this was maybe eight or nine months ago. How, how these songs were being done. Mm-hmm. So I thought I'll just learn, and there were already models that people had created like algorithms that people had created online, uh, basically stripping an artist's voice from their tracks, removing the background instrumentals, and then plugging all of those vocals into an algorithm so that now you can essentially replicate the voice of Katy Perry or the voice of Eminem mm-hmm. on your own. and. Interlace them with whatever song you're writing. Yeah. So wow. now you can be the writer of a you know you a hit artist song. The, no, this well, is not legal. Uh-huh. None of this is legal
1: right well, now. Well, you know, it's <laughs> also not necessarily illegal, and we'll try to you know that's. Uh, this is your territory. And my, my territory, and then you you start looking at uh at you know at the advent of the internet or the sharing of content, the creative create uh, creation of content in the late '90s, early 2000s, and some of the most interesting cases that we covered in law school were how the legal system reacted to new technologies where you're not necessarily sure what the law is or how the law applies. And and that's going to be a fascinating area of law over the next few years. Um, Because everybody, sometimes you don't know something is illegal until a court case rules on it. Mm-hmm. Right. And in fact, that's that's the speaking about new technologies. That's the rule, not the exception. Um, so some fascinating. I don't know which names are going to be on the cases that the law students in 2028, 29 read, but there's going to be some interesting cases around the, this technology and the utilize, you know, as it relates to public figures and their publicity rights, copyrights and, and whatnot. I agree. Um, yeah. Um, so that'll be interesting to monitor.
2: <coughs> Excuse me.
1: God bless you. Um, from there um, and some other really I- interesting uses of AI that you know you've highlighted um, creation of childhood memories and that you don't have a scrapbook of your memories. Um, you know people did not have cameras on their phone up until recently so your childhood from any time before about 2011 uh, and you can just speak these memories into an AI generator and out pops the photo that you wish that you had that you didn't get.
2: Yes. So, I mean, I realize some of these examples are a little obscure and might be creepy to some people, but I did this experiment where I took a handful of photos of me when I was 10 years old, put them into a model so that it understood my face and what i looked like and then recreated certain memories from my childhood mm-hmm. from me at the arcade uh with my friends on my birthday me at home underneath this fort that i made underneath my stairs that had posters of my favorite mm-hmm. you know hollywood celebrities up and my mom i sent the photos to my mom and she's like where did you find these i've never seen these photos mm-hmm. wow. that's how good they were wow that's incredible. and they also looked like they were taken in 19 19- in the 1990s. Yeah, cuz it's one know? of the
1: interesting one of the charm, so, you know, listen, you want the charm and the authenticity of those childhood photos. Uh, the the graininess is kind of you prefer that. You don't want it to look like some something glossy that was yeah. shot in digital, right? And so it, by I, you'd have to explain to me how how it, uh, I simply input.
2: prompted it with, with No,
1: but with. for instance, uh, your mom you want the mom your mom and your photo. Yeah. AI can can read the your mother's image. You know, if you have other photos with other friends of yours from their childhood, or go grab your seventh grade uh, yearbook, they could the AI AI can scan all that and input. And you know, out pops the photograph with all of your friends from the, your childhood in the photo as well.
2: Yes, you could do that. It's
1: pretty mind blowing.
2: You could currently do that, and so you know, I posted this video. Whenever it was a couple of months ago and I was surprised there were a few people who commented that they lost one person lost all of their childhood scrapbooks in a fire mm-hmm. and they were so excited about the idea of using this technology to rebuild their family photo albums um, my grandparents you know they grew up in the 40s and yeah. so for them this is a cool opportunity to potentially recreate their love story mm-hmm. when they met wow. I- I'm working very on that pro- I'm working on that project this for them right
1: very now. notebook like <laughs> Alzheimer's okay. Um, that's yeah. what you should be working on for sure. Um, last item on kind of content and media, if you had commented on the Beatles and Paul McCartney's use of AI and, and you know, some interesting innovative ways they were using it. You know, what, what was that?
2: Yeah, so Paul McCartney and the Beatles actually released a new track ra- relatively recently mm-hmm. uh, that was an unfinished track okay. from the 60s. And now it's, of course, escaping me because it's been a little bit since I commented on this story. But one of I don't remember which Beatles member had actually written the track and done a Mm -hmm. rough recording, but they were able to use AI to strip out his voice so that you could actually work with the raw files and then to replicate Mm -hmm. his voice. Um, And I think it was uh, the two remaining Beatles members who finished the chorus. And, I mean, it's pretty amazing.
1: Yeah, yeah. So the... uh... What might have been from some of our favorite acts that, you know, or, uh, were broken up by un- unscrupulous Japanese performance artists might, you know, be able, we might be able to see what would have been. Exactly. With, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, very exciting stuff.
2: But who knows, you know, Kurt Cobain, a lot of these artists who um, who left us very young, mm. but still had demo tapes. Sure. I would not be shocked if mm. their states at some point decide. You know what? Let's see. Let's take that out and finish that.
1: Who for knows? Even Tupac might release a posthumous <laughs> album, or maybe his eighth. Um, that that would be fascinating. Yeah. So moving on to, uh, from media and the creative arts to uh, a, a little bit more in terms of uh, human health, safety, medical uses, um, and you know, and, and the, the neuroscience angle here, um, brain-computer interfaces (BCI) um, is that the same terminology that directly applies to your work with BlackRock, uh, Neuro, okay. Good job. Yeah, there we go.
2: Brain-computer interface.
1: All right, the novice that... It's
2: an interface that connects the brain to a computer.
1: But it's, so it's not just a cute name?
2: It's not just a cute name.
1: Love it, so why don't you tell us about it?
2: Yeah, so essentially, and if anyone, has heard about Neuralink and what elon musk is doing because that's obviously been all over the news lately they mm. just implanted some uh, a patient um, essentially the company that i've been working for makes the exact same technology the only difference is that they've been doing it for two decades okay so um they've had several dozen people who have been mm. implanted with these devices um, they're tiny little chips that have a hundred electrodes on them there's these little electrical spikes and those spikes actually pick up the activity of individual neurons okay. in the brain and those that neuron activity is then sent to a digital device where an AI algorithm is running processing it and translating it into digital code that a computer can understand Mm -hmm. Uh, and so what that enables you to do is a lot of amazing things so if you've got a person with paralysis uh, who can no longer move and you implant them with a bci in their motor cortex for instance which is the part of the brain that deciphers movement Mm -hmm. and you have them imagine moving their arm and hand. Well, we can send that information into a computer and actually translate that information into a robotic arm. Mm -hmm. So now they can actually use their thoughts to control a robotic arm, to feed themselves.
1: Wow, Um, wow, okay. mm
2: -hmm. Um, Also, I mean, anything that you can imagine doing with a digital device, you can do with your brain. So Mm -hmm. whether that's typing on a computer, doing Photoshop, Controlling a robotic arm, controlling a Roomba. So I mean,
1: forget past voice to text. We have think to text.
2: This is think to text. Yeah. That's right. Wow. And it and it works today, and it's been working for two decades. Okay. Uh, we just haven't had a, a you know a, an entrepreneur with a big megaphone talking sure. about it until now. Mm-hmm. So most people just aren't aware of how far along this technology really is. And motor control is not the only thing these devices can do. If you implant the device in the sensory part of the brain, which is responsible for our sense of touch, you can actually inject uh, information back into the brain Mm -hmm. so that the person with paralysis or the amputee can now sense touch through the d- digital device. Okay. So if you have a robotic arm, let's say the robotic arm is cooking and once you wanna make cake <laughs> with your robotic arm and you need to, mm. to crack eggs, you need to be able to feel the pressure that you're placing on the eggs. Okay. Otherwise the eggs will just break. Yeah. yeah. So now we can actually inject that information back into the brain of the person utilizing the robotic wow. arm so okay. they can sense touch again.
1: Even though what the, the actual surface area, the, the, uh, the part of their body, it's not actual flesh, blood, flesh and bone, but because it's linked to their brain, just as though that arm was sending the brain signals it to touch or whatever sensory input it was getting, gets the same sensory input.
2: That's exactly right.
1: Wow, it's amazing.
2: Um, you know, or if the person's wearing a prosthetic and they need to know if the you know if the prosthetic is in fire, like on fire, they would not actually know that it's on fire unless they see that it's on fire or unless uh-huh. they're getting sensory feedback. Yeah.
1: And we'll have more of the prevailing narrative after the break. So what, what's the uh, market penetration of, of this? I mean, how, how many people get who have paralysis or uh, amputees have gotten access to this technology and where's, where's it headed so, and who do we invest in?
2: <laughs> so very small market at this moment in time. It's all been in clinical trial stages okay. for two decades, right? Uh, so none of this is commercially available. You can't just go to your doctor mm-hmm. if you have paralysis and say, I want a BCI. You have to actually sign up for a trial. Um, you know, it's very important to the FDA uh, that they have a lot of safety data and they make sure that these devices, um, you know, are safe to have in for your brain for decades. Mm-hmm. But in terms of where this is all going, there are already several hundred thousand people with paralysis who have deep brain stimulation devices implanted deep in the brain, even more deeply than a BCI. These are different than a BCI because there's no real-time communication between a computer and the brain with these devices. But... What's similar is that these devices provide electrical stimulation to the part of the brain that impacts the Parkinson's. Mm-hmm. So it, I don't know if you've seen this, but people who have DBS implants, you turn on the device and it, they stop trembling. The okay. tremors just stop. Wow. I mean, it's wild. I mean, you can have someone that's really has terrible, terrible side effects, and boom, electrical stimulation on, stop. And wow. so, and there's and because we've had so much safety data uh, on these hundreds of thousands of people, mm-hmm. I think that we will see over the next 10 years, the same kind of shift towards BCI, not just with people with paralysis, mm-hmm. but really anyone with a neurodegenerative disorder uh-huh. that would have a use for these devices. And then of course you're gonna have this small section of the population that is aware of the risks and doesn't care and goes to Guatemala or somewhere to go get themselves an mm-hmm. implant because they wanna be able to sit in bed at night and type to Google using their brain.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that
2: is going to happen.
1: For sure. Because For we sure.
2: can't <laughs> just.
1: Yeah. you We can't regulate the entire world, you know, pa- uh, cross-border regulation. I mean, we see it with the use of drugs and you're going to see, you know, you see with a, a number of medical procedures, you're going to see it in this realm as well. Um, and that brings up a lot of interesting, and all of this stuff brings up a lot of interesting ethical and philosophical questions. Um, some of the more prominent ver- voices on uh, in the AI world, you know, a lot of the top venture capitalists, because obviously they're all trying to figure this out. Um, From a business perspective, and obviously the conversation has dived into ethics and and, most prominently impacting um, the attempt to dislodge Sam Altman from uh, OpenAI that failed late last year, which I think was probably a good indicator that the the commercial concerns are always going to win out over the supposed ethical concerns, Um, but that that has not extinguished the conversation. Um, And so, you know, from what I've gathered, if you're training computers to essentially replicate mimic humans just like you want you let's look at systems right i mean religion and, and theology was a, a way to uh, uh educate and instruct human beings on how to tame their worst impulses and to act morally and ethically mm-hmm. um, so if you're creating machines that are going to be essentially human um what are the concerns about how you're going to train those machines to be moral and ethical and who gets to decide that um right on this, what what have you seen? What what have been interesting conversations, and, and where do you think the concern, real concerns are? I know that's a very broad question.
2: Well, there's just so many concerns, right? There's the there's and there's sort of the theoretical concerns that most of us hear about in the news, which is are the are our AI overlords going to take it's over? It's the Terminator
1: two yeah. thing. People see too many movies. Are they going to launch the nukes? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, and then there's the really like real time concerns that mm-hmm. we have around misinformation around unauthorized use of someone's likeness you know we've already seen all of the ai being used for for deep fake porn um so it kind of depends like which problem do you (laughs) want to do you want to focus on first i know that a lot of the engineers that have been working at the big tech companies who've been just racing to put out this technology have felt very nervous Mm -hmm. Um, you know, feeling like we don't quite know what we're building. There's this genie, and we've let it out of the bottle. Sure. Um, and so there's a lot of concerns, but I will say I've been impressed in looking at the ethics papers from a lot of these companies in terms of how they're trying to address it. Like they really are trying to address it. Um,
1: in- okay, but are they are they trying to? It, 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 if you're talking to Mark Andreessen, for instance, yeah, yeah. Um, these these solutions worse than the problem, Cur- right? Correct. Um, and then playing to some of the, the topics that I hold near and dear in terms of, yeah, if we're looking at free speech, um, political commentary, social commentary, um, and quote-unquote misinformation, and who gets to determine what misinformation is. Right. And during the social media era, the uh, uh, the humans who exercise robotic-like power over these platforms did not have a particularly precise definition of misinformation. I don't think we're responsible stewards of whatever the ethical concerns of those platforms were. Um, and then, yes, you're looking at the the, the Andreessen's and uh, most of the members of, of his venture capital firm. And, you know, Andrew Chen chimes in on this a lot. Uh, and then the kind of, you know, key, uh, adjacent to Andreessen Horowitz is the founder's fund and Peter Thiel's fund. And these are leading technologists who are more libertarian or more pro free speech and uh, have usually been correct in their criticism of social media platforms and their censorship and moderation policies and i think uh solana mike solana the founders fund i mean you mentioned we created ai capable of answering in seconds any question within the bounds of all recorded human knowledge and the first thing we asked it to do was lie um my interpretation of that is that essentially the companies that are are kind of instructing uh, from an ethical perspective, these early models um, are training them to follow, you know, much like the social media, the the moderation policies of social media companies or Twitter until Elon Musk took it over um, to, uh, abide by certain progressive orthodoxies, right? And mm-hmm. that uh, I saw someone posted a request to a, a chat. I, I believe it was ChatGPT to create an image of a 1930s Nazi soldier, and it wouldn't. even it said it was would, was unable to do so. Uh, like, who on earth is deciding that it, it's anathema, that it's taboo for AI, a text to video, uh, uh image generator, to create a did World War II not happen, right? right. Um, and that other answers to inquiries around political or cultural items um, where you can tell that someone put their thumb on the scale always seem to fall in one direction in terms of protecting the progressive ideas and and demonizing or criticizing or blocking certain ideas that I don't necessarily even think are very conservative but are considered more conservative these days. Um, sure. I know this is more a little bit more my terrain, but what have you seen or heard in your discussions around some of these concerns?
2: No, it's really interesting. I mean, I would love to read some of the things that you've come across in this space. I certainly have noticed the guardrails mm-hmm. <laughs> that exist on um, on a lot of these platforms, which I actually didn't, I may, and maybe this is naive of me to think, but just because they raced to put a lot of this out so quickly... Um, I didn't think of it the same way that I consider the guardrails that exist on social media mm-hmm. because th- those are like censoring you from being able to express yourself. Sure. Whereas these tools are more sort of information gathering okay. tools. Well,
1: well it, the, in, in the, let's call it the pre-Elon Twitter era, it was the trust and safety team yeah. looking at someone's tweet and saying, okay, th- this is wrong, think, this violates our content moderation policies. I imagine the AI version is whoever the engineers are that are training the model, uh, the LLM, um, are are training it to abide by a moderation policy that is this, that would somewhat mirror what the more uh, hands-on human uh, uh, content moderation activities of a pre-Elon Twitter uh, Trust and Safety Council would do.
2: Yeah, and I think it's also just, you know, the, the, the tricky thing about this, which is so different from social media, is we are teaching the AI model as we use it. And mm-hmm. so now you have, I don't know how many hundreds of millions of people on chat GPT, but we are actively instructing this model on how we want it to behave. And we cannot see in five years' time, seven years' time, how powerful these models will be. Um, and I think there's just a lot of concerns, and so people are generally... Um, People are generally trying to play it a little bit safer. Mm -hmm. And in part, that's a little bit of a response, I think, too, to all of the unintended consequences that have come about from social media. Like, I don't think any of us thought when Mm -hmm. we got on Facebook in 2003 or 4 or 5 or whatever it was that we would essentially be giving all of our data away mm-hmm. to this massive company and that in 20 years time our personal data would become a huge potential issue sure uh, I
1: guess about. I didn't really I, I I kind of expected that you did and, uh, yeah you were... most people did not I was like <laughs>
2: you're out of the curve know,
1: if I'm talking about stuff everyone's gonna know you know it's not, I'm not not gonna be hard to find yeah um, but un- understood there um, and yeah and as if you're if you're looking into these issues you know, you see who on Twitter is the little clusters of people talking about it. It's Andrew Chen. It's Mark Andreessen. Um, it's some couple people that, that you might see them retweeting. Mike Solana and a couple of the kind of anonymous accounts that you know are probably well-known venture capitalists behind them because of their other the non-anonymous venture capitalists are always retweeting and talking to them. Um, you go, you go check Andreessen's timeline. You'll find your way into enough of the conversations um, around these topics. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, beyond that, beyond censorship, free speech, and um, if there is a a political prejudice to these AI models, um, other ethical concerns specific that might that you have seen discussed.
2: Here's where my handy dandy note sheet uh, comes that's, in. I
1: that's what the note I sheet is. I was like, has anyone
2: for? ever come onto Matt's? Podcast with a note sheet. Uh-huh.
1: I mean, more than there's... a couple people. And there's some people who probably would have been better served by doing so,
2: right? Yeah. I mean, well, the problem is I didn't really map out map out ethics here. I mean, I think. We already ta- we touched on it, but the misinformation one is obviously going to be the biggest problem for this high, year. High temperature, very high temperature, and right now very high stakes. Uh-huh. The stakes couldn't be higher. We have an election coming up. We have a country that has is pretty divided. Mm-hmm. Maybe the most divided it's ever been. I don't know where you would. Twenty twenty
1: is it was more divided. More Twenty twenty. Um, it's div- might be more divided in terms of scope of division now, but the intensity of the division, I think. Um, people, you know, one of, uh, something that I continue to harp on is how people have short memories and people do not re- recall the intensity, even before 2020, um, through the entire first Trump administration, the intensity of the, ener- the hostile, hostile energy around anything political and That's cultural. True. Um, and there won't be people, you, you might get a riot here, a riot there. You will not get people burning down cities summer 2024. You will not have to board up cities, uh, on election Eve 20, 20- people forget. Cities were boarded up because they were concerned, if Donald Trump won, that there were going to be large-scale riots and cities being torn down. You will not have that that degree of intensity, and the temperature will not rise like that. There will be other things that are weird, but it's not going to get to that level. So, I mean, we can probably call this the second most contentious election. Um, Nothing's going to compare to 2020. Um, But certainly, yes, what is misinformation? Uh, Who gets to define it? And are the people defining it, defining it properly? And we've had a bit of a battle around that on uh, in, you know, the social media battle. And yes, I mean, hopefully, let's actually hope some of these AI developments, like it's just hold off till 2025 so we don't have to have that battle uh, uh, around it in 2024.
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think that's what makes me the most concerned about the tools like Sora is it's here. And I'm sure yeah. it'll be released. And, and we're talking about video and audio tools where I could take your audio from this podcast, mm-hmm. even just two minutes of it, actually less than that, six seconds of it, but for the most accurate Matt Belinsky model,
1: I sure. do two minutes. Oh, that would have to be accurate.
2: And I could make you say anything I want you to say, and it would sound exactly like you mm-hmm. with your cadence. That's and, and, terrifying. It, like how, how do we sense make?
1: Sure, sure. It's going to be difficult to sense make. Um, another interesting kind of that, the the flip side of that, though, is interesting that anyone can claim that somebody just fabricated something.
2: Which is also... Yeah, make, you're going to be like we really have no sense making. yeah i mean
1: the, but... <laughs> the the diligence process to verify what's real and what's not because just like anyone can create fabricate something so anyone can use that as a defense it was like well, i don't say that look go you can go go if you, unless you go really peek under the hood and take the time to go verify that oh yeah someone came up with a someone used sora to make me look stupid um and there's going to be you know i'm sure that the dust will settle on that Eventually, but in the interim, as this technology is being rolled out and people get used to it, um, I think a lot, a lot of those battles are going to be fought for sure.
2: One hundred percent. Yeah. So that's the thing I'm most nervous about this year, and not just, not just for the election, just in general, like our ability to. I mean. <laughs> I'm just uh, always share been, reality. Share reality, and mm-hmm. it's hard enough to share reality when we don't have these tools in yeah. place, and somehow we're, you know, we have people seeing two different realities, or mm-hmm. three different, or four different realities, and now at a zero it's or two sort to of that now infinite, right? Yeah. Um, so that's really terrifying. I think the the thing that feels most critical to me is for kids to learn critical thinking and a process of arriving at like conclusions and information, mm-hmm. and the kinds of questions we should be asking people. Sure. Um, to make sure, you know, that we can arrive at the best possible sort of conclusion.
1: Yeah, no doubt. With the information and, given. I mean, my prediction for better or for worse there is that these AI tools are going to, you know, are, are going to serve the, the results there for children. are going to be so, somewhat like the results for, you know, you just basic digital media 1.0 or 2.0 tools and that it's going to serve some incredibly well and probably the long tail not that well. Hmm. Um, and that's just the, the nature Explain of... Explain that. Um that technology increases the stakes the velocity and scale um and allows those who are able to utilize the tools properly to aggregate the benefits one more concentrated benefits, and those benefits being acquired at a faster pace. That's why you see so many. Uh, go, go look at the people occupying houses in the Hollywood Hills. There have always been a few young actors or athletes who might make enough money to go and, you know, be, be independently wealthy. Now. Um, so much of the youth has leap, leapfrogged the generations that you know were already in their adulthood before technology came around. They created companies and software and were entrepreneurial or content creators. And however, uh, when I was twenty-four, however many people were my age and had attained some degree of independent wealth, not from their parents, was X, and now that is about hundred X. Right. Um, then the the other thing that technology and social media presents are distractions and temptations. So those who are to, you know, give in to distraction and temptation and some of the bad stuff that you will find on the <coughs> social media, um, that's gonna, that the, the surface area of exposure for that is exponentially wider and they have suffered from that. And that's why you see, you know, record, uh, uh record volume of anxiety, depression, and dissatisfaction amongst the youth for better, for worse. Sure. I would like it to turn out differently. However, I think AI is going to be the same, the same way. Those who are talented and effective and know how to utilize it, <coughs> advancements in productivity, creativity, and ways to uh, acquire wealth through that or other you know, uh, life ease um, are going to do very well. And the people who get lost in kind of sitting there um, being distracted by the things that, that uh, are, are just passive consumers in <coughs> a variety of ways they're, they're going to suffer even more. Yes, there's a, a high concentration of benefits and a lot of distractions and temptations that will not be productive for the long tail of individuals. Um, but out of AI may also come some solutions to some of the harmful impacts of Web 2.0 and social media, and that maybe this will give rise to new new degrees of of. of of understanding and solutions to the basic distractions of kids, you know, uh, being getting screwed up by by playing these status games that get shoved in their face each day by social media, and that leading to distraction, anxiety, and depression. So um, I, I'm not fatalistic about that, but I mean, if we're looking at um, the the you know the the effects of the leverage scale and velocity created by Digital media and social media, and apply that to AI and our, our new, you know, future machine overlords. Um, there are some concerns, um, but I'm generally a, a techno optimist, much like Andreessen, um, and uh, and he, he's, you know, maybe not quite as much as he is, um, and, and that. It, it, this being unfettered by the the concerns and a more libertarian approach to it is going to yield the best results. I mean, that's a philosophical conversation that we can get into for quite some time. Um, but I think we've we've covered a, a number of interesting philosophical and ethical questions about AI. And you know, to finish up here, maybe we'll we will uh, uh, downshift back to the everyday practical day to day uses for normal people just out there in terms of thinking about how your average individual is not a content creator, who's not a neuroscientist or the subject of a neuroscientist experiment. is utilizing AI right now or how it's gonna be available over the next 12 months. And you know, you think about it, you hear what are the, the potential uses, a lot of it kind of uh, is in the realm of virtual assistant that okay, great, I can use it as my virtual travel agent or to book a reservation or gather, you know, some information about some research topic that I, that I was interested in very quickly or utilize it to generate, you know, uh, a lengthy email that I had to write that would otherwise take me an extra half hour. I don't know, what are those tools and how do people get used to them and how do they learn, learn how to use them?
2: I think you already gave some great use case examples. The question really is where can AI help you in your life? Mm -hmm. And it's all about optimizing for the things that you want to optimize for. Some people just want to make more money or be more productive. Other people want to feel happier. They want to feel less anxious. Mm -hmm. And there are a million ways to slice this pie and use these tools. I mean, the first thing I always tell people to do is start using ChatGPT now on simple problems that you need to solve um, in your life, like you know maybe you do have a challenging conversation coming up with a fellow coworker and you don't know the best way to approach it mm-hmm. learning how to use these tools learning how to prompt and instruct these tools makes all of us better communicators first okay. of all right so and and learning you know how what you put into the ai provides a very different results. So sure. you could say something like, you know, I need to approach a difficult conversation with my coworker. Can you please provide me a few different ways to do that mm-hmm. using different style like different communication styles? One being a more assertive style, one mm-hmm. being a nonviolent communication style. Okay. Right. And we can start to learn and kind of grow our like expertise on being human and how sure. to be human better. Um, so it, you know The sky is kind of the limit in how these tools are used. I really like some of the potential mental health mm-hmm. aspects of this. There's a number of tools that are already out there for this, and I'm using a couple of them, one which can actually analyze Certain text message threads that you provided, of course, all private data, to determine how you could improve your interrelational relational communication. Okay. To so improve communication, it'll actually and give you, you found
1: benefit out of that.
2: Absolutely, it'll okay. give you real tips, and, and you read it, and you're like, "Oh yeah, that seems so obvious, mm-hmm. right?" But just it, that that's really helpful. Another thing could be priming. So we know visualization, certain kinds of language primes our brain to think certain ways. Mm-hmm. Just fl- reframing. S- situations that are causing us angst, anxiety is mm-hmm. helpful. So a lot of these AI tools are also doing that. You can basically use it as a therapist. You know, sit there, record something that is super upsetting that you're kind of navigating through, and have the AI help you reframe it, mm-hmm. and then send you little prompts throughout the day so that it's not something that's hanging over you. Um, you know, I'm I one of the examples that I used uh, earlier is that I'm helping my grandparents rebuild kind of a, a, a story of how they met and mm-hmm. their love story. That's
1: pretty cool. Yeah.
2: Right? And they've been together 75 years. So um, there's endless possibilities for, sure. for how you can use these tools. It really just comes down to your imagination and your ability to communicate with them. To get the results that you're looking for.
1: Got it. And probably a challenge, you know, challenge yourself to become a better, better communicator to allow these tools to help you become a better communicator. So, essentially, you know, for the layperson out there, um, just just beginning to utilize ChatGPT, getting used to prompt and instruction, that's going to put you ahead of God knows how many people.
2: A 100%. Yeah. I always say AI is not going to take your job, the person who knows how to use AI is.
1: Uh, could not have said it better myself and once again that's why you are the ai evangelist translator and we're doing this in 2009 17 18 before anyone was on this beat um, taryn i i as always an incredible innovator and just so uh, knowledgeable about how new technologies and things that are at the forefront of the what the smartest people are thinking about and using and how that's going to impact our lives Obviously, I promised everybody that they were going to get our origination story. Yes, please. So funny. You know, being when I was sitting there as as an innovator myself, sitting there in law school, like, oh, my God, I got to go start a business or something with my best friend. And we're like, okay, we have a buddy of ours started a pickup and delivery laundry service for rich, lazy kids at colleges. And we're like, oh, USC sounds like a good place to build that. And we did it. And of course, we needed attractive young ladies to hand out flyers. Uh, on frat row, and one of them happened to be the world's leading AI uh, tech evangelist here. Um, and I think yes. it was
2: my first.
1: Was that your first job ever? Was that the first time? It wasn't time? my
2: first job, but it was my it was my first gig in L.A. Okay, your <laughs> it first, was my gig first gig in L.A. LA. Gig. I think I was Got 17 it. or 18 years so old.
1: So the, the lesson, obviously, to be gleaned from this is that the quickest path to success is to be hired to hand out flyers on my behalf. Clearly um taryn help
2: your your empire your laundry empire Yeah, the
1: laundry empire that we sold way too early to the kid who drove the van for us but that's another story you were uber
2: for laundry
1: and we fucking sold it and like don't even even ask but god bless the kid who i still see him and he's raking in cash but anyways a story for another time taryn thank you so much why don't you tell everybody where they can find you oh
2: thank you i'm just taryn southern across all of the all of the platforms, all
1: the good stuff. What's well, so the good AIE platform? Should we, where can we find all your AI stuff? That's not there yet. Just
2: Instagram. Okay. Instagram.
1: Fantastic. Yep. Um, and it's everybody, easy. you know, as usual, uh, my socials where you see me. I'm trying to kind of try to aggregate as much good information from Taryn as possible. Uh, Twitter and Instagram, at Matt Belinsky. Obviously, likes, comments, subscriptions, uh, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts. Um, I hope this has been edifying for everybody. I know it has been for me. Taryn, thank you again uh, so much.
2: Thank you
0: so much. Thanks to State Farm for supporting this show and helping our listeners protect their businesses and lives.